Welcome to the Cornell Tech at Bloomberg podcast, in which we bring you conversations we've had during our monthly speaker series held at Bloomberg's global headquarters in New York City. Cornell Tech at Bloomberg brings together students from Cornell Tech, Bloomberg employees, and members of New York's technology community to hear from entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders, luminaries from the global technology sector. Many know the success story of the little online eyewear company that could. It didn't have any physical stores and instead lent out products for consumers to thumb through and return, like library books. Now it's valued at $1.75 billion and considered one of the original marketplace disruptors. I'm Scarlett Fu of Bloomberg Television, and in this episode, we talk e-commerce strategies and how to build lasting customer relationships with Neil Blumenthal, co-founder and co-CEO of Warby Parker. Neil, welcome to Thank Bloomberg. You. Welcome to the Cornell Tech at Bloomberg series. You launched your company, Warby Parker, almost seven years ago. So set the scene for us now. Tell us how you've evolved your business from the early days when e-commerce was mainly on the desktop, and then it moved to mobile, and now it's in social. Yeah, so, um, well, I think for one thing, right, it's not the four of us working out of uh, our apartment uh, using pens that we stole from TD Bank. Um, <laughs> But we actually have office supplies. That was actually a big milestone when we when we bought sort of our first paper and, and pens and weren't just uh, stealing them. Um, you know, <laughs> we're now uh, about a thousand people, um, which which is um, uh, quite creates quite a complex uh, organization, uh, especially when you think about all the different areas uh, uh, of the business. Uh, we now have retail that we didn't. Um, in, in vision before, uh, so we have a whole corporate retail team and a team in our stores, um, our sort of brand management and marketing team, we do all our brand design in-house, um, our uh, eyewear design team, our um, in, entire tech team, uh, 60 plus uh, engineers, data scientists, data, data engineers. Um, so, you know, today when, uh, when we're trying to solve problems, uh, we have real experts that are able to, um, uh, to work on them. I think also when we have challenges, um, it, it's no longer that we're fighting fires. Yes, crises uh, emerge, but mm -hmm. in those early days, um, every single thing is a fire and it's all hands on deck, um, staying up until all hours of the night to make sure work gets done. But you've had to rip up the script a number of times. You've had to change and pivot along the way. Your original business plan did not include physical stores at all. Describe for us the aha moment when you realized that you can't move forward without opening physical stores. Yeah, so, uh, well, it's actually right when we were starting the company. Um, so we'd spent a year and a half working on our business plan, uh, making a really great PowerPoint uh, <laughs> design. And uh, what we realized was that, hey, there's like three things that we need to launch. We need a collection, so product to sell. We need a website in order to sell it. Um, and we need PR to let people know that we were alive because we were building the, the, this fashion brand. Um, so uh, we were able to get featured in Vogue and GQ. We launched the company. Um, and and the company takes off like a rocket ship. Um, uh, we hit our first year sales targets in three weeks, uh, hit our um, sell out of our top 15 styles in four weeks. But also what happened within that time period uh, was that we had to suspend our home try-on program where we uh, enable people to select five frames, we ship it to them free of cost. Uh, and we did that within 48 hours. 
uh, because we ran out of inventory. Um, so <laughs> that forces it, your hand. That forces our hand where suddenly customers start calling in saying, um, hey, you know, we tried to do a home try-on. It looks like you're out of stock. Could we just come into your office? Um, and uh, we thought, uh, wow, we don't really have an office. Um, <laughs> it would be quite awkward uh, if we invited them to uh, my apartment. Um, but you know what? We were like, what Let's the hell? It. Let's do it. Um, and literally, uh, we invited, we only invited five people to start, figuring that if this was a bad experience, uh, we were mitigating risk because it would only ruin the experience for, for five people. Um, and the first person that came in uh, was super confused. Um, like, what am I doing as a residential building and opening the apartment uh, door and seeing a bunch of people uh, sort of typing away on laptops on the couch, um, the glasses uh, sprayed across uh, the dining room table, um, a laptop, uh, my co-founder Dave's laptop, open to our website. Um, and that was the first, our first foray into bricks and mortar. Uh, and our, that first customer, I remember, was a, a resident, so it was in full scrubs. Um, and something special happened. Uh, he got a chance to see uh, us sort of warts and all, get a chance to peek behind the curtain. And for us, it was this realization, um, A, that people want to interact with our product in person, which we sort of knew, which is why we had the home try-on program. Mm -hmm. um, but two, that we can build awesome relationships with our customers the more vulnerable we are, the more that we let them in. Um, and uh, that's been one of our philosophies is let's build relationships between our brand and our customers in the same way that human beings build relationships with other human beings, and that's through vulnerability. And you're continuing to build those relationships. You've expanded your product line. You're now selling um, sunwear. And some people might say, how big of a deal is it to go from prescription glasses to sunglasses, right? I mean, we go to uh, LensCrafter, and they have prescription glasses right next to the sunglasses display. Um, what assumptions did you have about selling sunwear that have been proven wrong? Well, I, I think one of the things is that we knew that it was a, a, a different product, mm -hmm. um, and that's why we didn't launch with it. When we launched, uh, we only had acetate frames, like the frames I'm wearing, uh, with single vision lenses. Uh, it wasn't until, until year two that we introduced uh, sunglasses, um, and that's because um, it's, a, it, it's a different customer. For one thing, the majority of sunglasses uh, are purchased by people that don't need glasses, um, uh, prescription glasses. Uh, number two, it's uh, a far less considered purchase. But people buy prescription glasses typically once every two years. Uh, when they go to shop for it, um, there's very high intent. Um, sunglasses, it's an impulse buy. Uh, you buy maybe right before you go on vacation or right when you lose a, a pair of glasses or when you're shopping for uh, other accessories. Um, and uh, it, it's much more fashion and, and design driven uh, and brand driven. So we thought it'd be helpful if we you know, had a year under our belt building the Warby Parker brand. Um, so uh, it, it's been interesting. Um, you know, I think for one thing, um, we uh, recently actually um, redesigned our eyewear design team to split sort of between uh, prescription frame design and sunglass design. Um, and that was, uh, if there was something I wish we did earlier, I wish we did that earlier. It's not that they don't collaborate, mm -hmm. but because it's a slightly different purchase process and different customer uh, and, and different fashion cycle, um, we want those designers to be thinking differently. Okay, you could have split it up a lot faster or earlier. Now that you're both virtual and physical, who do you consider your biggest competitor? 
Um, you know, on the eyewear brand side, um, there's only two sort of massive brands within eyewear, and that's Ray-Ban and Oakley. Both do over a billion dollars in, in sales. Um, uh, when we're surveying our customers, it's Ray-Ban that comes up sort of most, most frequently. Um, and then, of course, there are literally hundreds of licensed fashion brands from Ralph Lauren to Prada to Tom Ford, sort of you, you name it uh, uh, across, the, uh, across the spectrum. But um, at, at this point, we're um, probably the biggest independent um, eyewear, eyewear brand uh, out there. And you mentioned all those different brands like Tom Ford. Um, they're all made by Luxottica, which is this Italian company that kind of dominates the eyewear space. You had a meeting with the CEO of Luxottica about four or five years ago. Uh, he beckoned you over. He called <laughs> you guys in. How was that meeting? What, what happened there? Yeah, so Luxottica, um, I haven't checked their market cap recently, but it usually is between 25 and $30 billion. Um, it's just been an amazing success story over the last, uh, you know, I think 40 years. Um, uh, and uh, it's uh, the dynamics of the industry with Luxottica in particular is one of the things that got us so excited mm -hmm. uh, about starting Warby Parker because they own Oakley, Ray-Ban, and Oliver Peoples, Persol, and Arnett. They um, license all these big brands, as you mentioned, um, like uh, Ralph Lauren, Chanel, Dolce Gabbana, Prada. Um, they um, own a lot of the retail chains like Ren Lens Crafters, um, Sunglass Hut, Pearl Vision, Target. Heard every price point. Uh, Every price point, uh, and they own the second largest vision insurance plan in the country, IMED. Um, and when we saw that, um, it actually, uh, while that may scare and in intimidate some folks, we actually thought it was a great opportunity because here we could undercut them and there was almost n nothing they could do because they couldn't compete with us on price uh, without really, uh, it's sort of the innovator's dilemma, right, without really messing up uh, the economics uh, of their business given how much it is uh, they wholesale. Um, so uh, they had grown a ton through acquisition. So we weren't surprised when, when we got the phone call. Uh, they have an office here in Midtown. Uh, we told our team, hey, if we're not back in two hours, uh, call, call the police. Um, <laughs> And uh, it was a really bizarre conversation because it wasn't much of a conversation. Usually when I go into a meeting, I'm asking as many questions as possible. Um, uh, and here the CEO really just pontificated and told us um, that he didn't think selling prescription glasses online made a lot of sense. That, even though you'd been doing it for a couple of years. Yeah, now. even though it clearly had some su success. <laughs> Um, he thought that uh, he could sell lots of sunglasses online. He started telling us about geographically how he thinks about the business, how China's probably going to grow, Europe maybe not so much, America it's unclear what's going on. This was uh, four years ago. Um, uh, emerging markets were really a great opportunity for them. Um, and we just walked out of the meeting like super, super confused, uh, but at least learned his perspective on, on, on the eyewear industry. So I don't think it was like a waste of an hour. He didn't want to um, hear what you had to say. He didn't I, ask you any questions, though. Uh, not, not a ton. Oh, no, he did ask, uh, what, what are you guys trying to do? Um, <laughs> and uh, it, it, was, you answer? it was such a crazy question that um, I said, oh, we're trying to build the world's biggest optical company. <laughs> Uh, and, and I said it like jokingly, like I just said, like I smile, like, uh, um, and with a, a, a straight face, he's just like, oh. <laughs> Good luck with that, right? Right, yeah. <laughs>
Now, your peer group has changed dramatically uh, in your six to seven years. Uh, first, there were those coupon websites, Groupon, for instance. Then there are the flash sites uh, where everyone had to log in at 12 p.m. to get the, the, the great deal. Now you've got these subscription models. What do you think the next business model will be for e-commerce? Um, I'm not an expert in that because sometimes those models can be quite gimmicky, mm -hmm. um, and, and I don't. Uh, and sometimes they're not built to last. And um, you know, I spend a lot of time thinking about how do we build uh, a company and a brand to to last. And it always comes down to the fundamentals, right? Great value, right? How do you deliver quality at price, and how do you deliver exceptional customer experiences? Um, you know, when we were fundraising um, early on. Uh, we would sometimes have investors say, oh, when are you going to launch a subscription service? I was like, subscription for glasses? Like, you're, you're crazy. <laughs> um, and, uh, it, you know, our perspective is, hey, yes, we want to uh, disrupt and change behavior, um, but changing behavior is really difficult. So it, it's probably easier um, to understand behavior and just create better experiences. And what I mean by that behavior is that people, on average, buy glasses once every two years. Uh, right, getting them to suddenly buy ten pairs of glasses in a year, right? That that is a, a tall order, um, and uh, even offering them the best um, uh, subscription offering, right, might might be a little difficult. But if I can make it as easy as possible uh, to buy glasses, you know, maybe if you buy it once every two years, I'm completely fine with that. Just buy it from us. Um, uh, hopefully, um, we'll start to get you to, to buy more frequently. Uh, but our goal um, is just to constantly do everything better than everybody else and not try and trick you into buying more. Yeah, frictionless transactions and convenience are always eternal values, Absolutely. right? Absolutely, and, and even more so now. Right, we um, are now living in a world where uh, products, uh, for the most part, uh, uh, deliver on their promise. Mm -hmm. Right, like everything is pretty much of of uh, decent quality. Um, there's a, a great professor at uh, HBS that talks a lot about this, uh, Young Me Moon. Sort of, uh, people used to buy Tide because they thought that it washed their clothes better. Now you go um, and you buy laundry detergent, you know that every single brand out there is going to wash your clothes just as good. Um, but what are some other attributes that you're going to purchase that on? Yes, it might be priced, but they're all compar uh, comparably priced. Um, it might be um, impact on the environment, uh, impact on your health, uh, the design of the packaging and the design of the logo, how that it, it, um, brand treats its employees, mm -hmm. um, all these other attributes. Um, and that's something that uh, we also feel like we excel at and are able to do better than uh, all of our competitors. Now this is something you referenced earlier on. Your biggest challenge is the one that made your company. GQ went out and interviewed you guys. They published a story about Warby Parker calling it the Netflix of eyewear. And this was even before your website was operational. So <laughs> you guys kind of realized that the magazine was going to be coming out in February and you weren't ready yet. Um, but you scrambled and you did it and as a result you hit your first year target within three weeks. My question to you is, are you ever tempted to challenge yourself like that again? Put yourself in a similar position where um, even just as an experiment, you give yourself a deadline that's almost impossible to meet just to see if you can do it. Just make sure that you're as nimble as you were back in the early days. Um, I, I think so. I think I have a reputation in the office of always setting an unrealistic deadline. Um, <laughs> 
we don't usually hit that deadline, uh, just like we didn't when we were trying to launch the website. Um, but um, I, I think that some of those artificial deadlines does create some urgency. Um, on the same token, um, we do believe that it's better to do it right um, than necessarily to do it fast. And at times, we feel like there's this corruption of lean startup methodology and the minimum viable product. Um, we think that theory is completely sound and we follow it where the corruption is, is what people believe is viable. Mm -hmm. um, and it's that viability is different from industry to industry. Um, and it's much higher than most people believe. Um, so we were launching, uh, yes, it's a fashion accessory, but it's also a health product. Um, and uh, we needed a certain amount of credibility. If we launched a website that wasn't working or the imagery on the site wasn't beautiful and didn't give you the sense that we're a reputable brand, you're gonna, you, you wouldn't buy from us and you'd never come back to us. So we knew that launching a fashion brand, you only have one shot to have a, a launch. Um, and that's when you can create a lot of attention and, and press buzz. Um, so we want to get that right. So we spent a year and a half working on the business before launch. And likewise today, whenever we're launching new products, we spend a lot of time sort of testing it, thinking about it, figuring out the right pricing. Um, and you know, just recently we introduced uh, photochromic lenses, right? That transition from light to dark. Um, and we've started it um, in our stores. Uh, and learning, and soon we'll we'll launch it online. And you might think, like, God, like six and a half years in, you guys don't even offer that yet. And it's um, we've always wanted to, when we deliver something, deliver it in an exceptionally awesome way. Um, and you, you can do that by focusing and then building on top of it. So that it's not in beta form, for instance. Exactly. Or if it's beta form, it's to a small subset of people that are learning where you reduce risk. Mm -hmm like the five people who showed up at your apartment. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I want to get to the financials now of Warby Parker. Is, is the company profitable yet? Um, we don't uh, uh, discuss uh, sort of our financials publicly, <laughs> um, but we're on a path to profitability. Okay, you've gone through five rounds of equity financing. Yep. Your last round was in 2015. It was $100 million a Series D. Um, quantify, qualify for us where you want to be financially next year, 2017 and 2018. Um, so, you know, we're on a, a, a path where we're growing quickly um, and continuing to um, get more profitable uh, every year. Um, I think investors have been really excited about the fundamentals of the business, including sort of our gross margin structure, um, our uh, relationships with, with our customers, um, and that includes uh, what it costs for us to acquire them um, and to keep them. Uh, and, you know, one of the metrics that we're probably most proud of is our net promoter score, which has been the, in the 80s since inception, and that's uh, really best in class that we've ever seen across um, any industry. Uh, last month it was actually 84, so um, it's actually uh, it's gone up year over year for us, and we keep thinking that's going to be harder and harder to keep customers happy as we scale, because more there's more touch points, but also Right? When you're dealing in the early days, you're dealing with the innovators and the early adopters, and they tend to have a lot more patience mm -hmm. than the late stage uh, adopters. So what's also good is that as we've grown, our systems have gotten stronger, and we have every year delivered a better and better customer experience. And you're better at it, honestly. Uh, definitely. Now, of course, those expectations continue to, to grow and evolve. 
Um, so one of the big things that we're doing um, this this year, well, I guess next year, um, is uh, launching and scaling our first optical lab where we'll cut the lenses, insert them into our frames. And this is sort of the next stage for us of vertical integration. Mm -hmm. um, and it will enable us to reach our customers faster as we know that those expectations are changing thanks to Amazon, thanks to Uber. Mm -hmm. um, there's still some patience because there's this recognition that we're making a custom product for each one of our customers. Um, but we still want to be um, exceeding those expectations uh, year after year. As responsive as possible. Being an entrepreneur means you ask investors for money a lot of the time to fund your business. Um, you worked in nonprofit after Tufts undergrad and before Wharton Business School. You spent a lot of time asking for money in nonprofit. So compare and contrast um, fundraising as a for-profit enterprise versus a nonprofit. Um, yeah. In my personal experience, it's been easier raising $100 million um, at Warby Parker than it was trying to raise like $100,000 uh, to distribute glasses to people living on less than $2 a day in Bangladesh. Even though you still do the latter um, as part of your for-profit business. Right, exactly. In fact, one of the reasons why um, uh, we do it through Warby Parker is because we know how hard it is. Um, so, uh, you know, it's easier for us uh, to grow and scale Warby Parker and be able to support nonprofits like the nonprofit I worked at, Vision Spring, um, often than it is just to, you know, fundraise uh, for some, some of these nonprofits. I think there's obviously structural issues at, at play. Um, one of the big disadvantages within the nonprofit sector is that you're actually fundraising all of the time. Um, and when you're uh, top uh, leadership is fundraising all the time. Uh, it means that they can't be spending all that time uh, growing and managing uh, the, the organization. So at Warby Parker, um, right, we've done a bunch of rounds of funding, um, but those are intense time periods uh, that go from, you know, when we're putting together the deck to meeting with investors uh, to closing the deal. Um, and then, um, not that we're not, uh, thinking about fundraising, because we're always sort of managing relationships that we could eventually tap to raise money. But the point is, is that it's not the number one priority uh, for the vast majority of the year. So we're able to really stay focused on, on scaling and growing the business. Interesting. Now, you've told me that you never really worked with a banker before because you go out there and raise funds yourself. At some point, though, you'll need to potentially repay your investors, go public, and that would entail going to bankers. What will be your criteria? Um, we think we'll want to work with somebody that uh, believes in the mission uh, of the company, that wants to pair us with uh, the best folks that uh, are going to be with us for, for the long run. Um, you know, this we've always built Warby Parker sort of to last and not as something that we want to just scale and immediately flip. Um, we're motivated to build a brand that's going to be around for 100 years and hopefully have a big uh, impact. Do you worry that going public would mean you'd be flipping the business? Uh, no, I, I don't think so. I, I, I think we view, um, you know, like an IPO as a as a financing event, which which is what it is. Uh, I think there are some concerns that being a public company, uh, you're under greater scrutiny, um, and that has both pros and cons, right? It it, it demands uh, to some extent better 
performance um, and holds uh, us as a leadership team accountable. Um, on the same token, uh, sometimes a lot of that noise can lead to short-term uh, thinking and short-term priorities. Um, and as a private company, we're able to think uh, three, five, ten years uh, down the road. So um, uh, that is something that is uh, in, in the back of my mind because that's what I hear from other CEOs. <laughs> and speaking of leadership team, um, Warby Parker, four co-founders, two co-CEOs. We know that co-CEOs don't always have a great track record. Uh, Deutsche Bank, for instance, uh, Whole Foods, Chipotle this week, of course, uh, dropped their co-CEO model. How does it work at Warby Parker? How do you guys divide and conquer? How do you make sure that you don't get in each other's way and you make the decisions that are right, but it doesn't take forever and doesn't get bogged down in discussion? Yeah, so um, uh, Dave and I, uh, my co-founder and co-CEO, uh, we literally sit right next to each other. So we have an open office layout, just uh, like here at Bloomberg. Um, we have regular meetings uh, every week, um, which we lock ourselves in a room anywhere from an hour to a couple hours, talk through all big issues. Um, we take those meetings seriously and prepare an agenda, just as we expect um, all of our uh, sort of direct reports to do when they're meeting with us. Um, sitting next to each other allows us to actually interact throughout the day, um, and there's a perception, uh, which I think is mostly true at, at Warby Parker, where if you say one thing to one of us, uh, the other one knows pretty quickly. Um, and uh, one of the things that we're always worried about is, hey, you go and tell mom one thing, and then uh, they say, no, you go to dad. Mm -hmm. And we've been able to avoid that um, completely. Um, we also have uh, clean reporting lines um, where uh, one of us is, uh, for our senior leadership team, is primarily responsible for a specific area of the business and that um, executive or department head. Um, and you know, it, it's really nice to actually have two people that can be the face uh, of the company, and then we can swap in and out uh, if there's a speaking engagement, is if there um, is a meeting with an investor, um, and uh, it just gives. We found that it gives us a lot of leverage. Um, sure, there's probably a little bit more of a communication burden mm -hmm. um, than if you're just a single uh, CEO, uh, but I think what it also does is that it forces us to be more thoughtful. Um, so uh, before I would, you know, go and implement anything really big, right? Dave and I would talk it through, um, and that it's a good uh, sort of a stress test. Has there been an instance when it didn't work, or you had to work through something that was really difficult, and you can share that anecdote with us, where you were really challenged, and for a moment you were thinking, you know what, this is not how it's supposed to work. This is not ideal, but you got through it. I, I don't have a great anecdote. Or you don't um, want to share one. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think what, what we've done is really try and create release valves so that way there's never that blow up, right? Because mm -hmm. uh, I, I think everybody envisions that, um, right, founders or, you know, co-CEOs, there must be uh, massive conflict at one point and then people just go at it and then they do irreparable harm to the relationship. Uh, and I think what we do is make sure that we're in communication regularly um, so that way we know what's going on so there are no surprises. Um, we uh, give each other feedback, again, so stuff doesn't bottle up. And that actually comes from when the four of us were starting the company when we were all getting our MBAs at Wharton. Um, we would, on a monthly basis, it sounds pretty cheesy, uh, but we would go to a bar 
and uh, put each other in the hot seat and go around the circle. Hey, you're doing this well. Hey, this can be improved. Hey, when you shoot me a 10-page email at 2 in the morning, I want to reach through the computer screen and strangle you. Um, it, you know, that prevents there from there being these uh, massive blow-ups. And you also start to learn a lot about the people that you're working with. So for example, um, right when I got a 10-page email at 2 in the morning, um, that was a bunch of ideas about the area of the business that I was responsible for, um, that I was already doing, my reaction was like, man, you know, does, does he not trust me? Um, does he not think that I'm capable of doing my job? Does he think I need these ideas? Um, but when you actually start talking through it, um, it's, oh no, it's just excited about the business and these were top of mind, I wanted to share it with you. Um, and it's uh, often human nature um, to go negative and get very defensive. Um, and that actually led to one of our core values as a company, which is to presume positive intent. Mm -hmm. um, and most of the people that we hire are great people. They're coming to Warby Parker because of our mission, um, and they generally act with integrity and with the right intent. Sometimes the outcome's not the desired one, but um, we don't, at the very beginning, we shouldn't question somebody's motives or intentions. Um, I want to ask you, get your thoughts on the startup scene. Um, New York versus Silicon Valley. You are a New York company, you are a New Yorker, you, you were raised here. Um, in what ways is the New York startup scene, the New York tech scene, uh, more conducive to collaboration, to nurturing a new business, a young business, than, say, Silicon Valley? Yeah, I, well, I don't think Warby Parker could exist in any other city, at least not to the success that, that we've had, um, because we sit at the intersection of the tech startup world, the fashion design world, uh, and the social enterprise world, and, and that really the epicenter is here in, in New York. Um, you know, one of the differences that, that I find um, is that the New York uh, tech scene um, is uh, smaller, more intimate, so a lot more collaborative uh, than in, in the Valley. I find that New York entrepreneurs um, tend to be um, more practical, which is both a good and a bad thing. Why is it um, bad? because uh, perhaps there aren't as many moonshots being taken. So uh, you may have a lot of companies that are in the 500 million to a couple billion, but you know, is, um, is the next uh, uh, Snapchat um, you know, gonna happen in, in New York? Um, perhaps, because that's within sort of the, the media world. Um, but, um, and even like you, Tesla, actually people don't realize this, but the scientist Tesla was here in, in New York. So New York has a very rich uh, tech history, uh, but there's no question that the, the Valley has claimed um, sort of uh, the, the top seat um, uh, over the last uh, 20 years or so. Um, but, you know, I, New York is a, is a strong second that's growing. Um, I think uh, we um, will continue to do very well in areas uh, like e-commerce and, uh, and brand and B2B and ad tech. Um, we're starting to grow more um, uh, in health tech, um, which I think is really exciting and uh, makes perfect sense to be here um, in, in New York. Um, so um, that ecosystem is starting to build and I think we should all figure out how to foster it and, and grow it faster. Where's the tension between the New York tech scene and the Silicon Valley tech scene? I mean, if, there are, if, they, if they address this on the next episode of uh, Silicon Valley, what might it look like? <laughs> <laughs> um, that's a good question. Uh, 
Uh, I mean, the, I think the stereotypes is that you go to the valley um, and there's only one conversation you could have, and that is about tech. Um, you're here in New York, um, and uh, you can have a conversation about tech, you can have about culture, about art, um, about fashion, and all these other things that I think make our lives richer, mm -hmm. um, and also I think can lead to more innovation and, and creativity. Do you find yourself um, answering more questions about um, financials, about the way you approach bankers than you might in Silicon Valley, where, where the focus is much more on the technical expertise? Or is that a misconception? Uh, I think it depends on the nature uh, of the business. Um, you know, I think if we were, um, you know, a, a platform or a, a, a media company, um, right, we probably wouldn't be called a media company because we were just a tech company, but right, the, you start to focus on more fluffy numbers like monthly active users, right, than um, actual customers, gross margin, and, and EBITDA. Um, so I think it's more the nature of our business as opposed to the geography. Mm. What about the other up-and-coming tech corridors, whether it's Boston or Austin? A lot of uh, the people here in this room might eventually go to another of those smaller cities which, where real estate prices are not as uh, <laughs> ridiculous. Um, what do they have to offer and how, what, what's their distinction? Um, I think one of the biggest things they have to offer is lower cost of living and, and, and lower costs. So you see a lot of uh, companies opening up secondary offices in uh, a bunch of these cities and um, we love them and we have an office in Nashville, for example. Um, uh, but at the end of the day, um, this is always a, 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 a sort of a war for talent. Um, in New York City um, uh, has for decades attracted some of the best talent in the entire world. So uh, I, I think that this is uh, the, the best place to be. Uh, a general question here after the cataclysmic events of November 8th, whatever you might think of the incoming president, do you believe that the business environment is more hospitable to, to growth, to faster growth, to brighter prospects? Because if you look at the stock market, if you look at um, how CEOs sound when they talk, it certainly seems that way. Yeah, you know, um, I can probably speak uh, most knowledgeably about our business. Um, our business uh, is dependent on talent. Uh, we've been pushing for uh, comprehensive immigration reform uh, for many years, um, and that is one of the unifying pillars of, of the tech community. Mm -hmm. um, so um, that has not happened, uh, and we want it to happen. Uh, we haven't heard a ton that makes encourages us to think that that's going to happen anytime soon, so that will remain important um, and is critical to the U.S economy and the growth of the tech sector. Um, education uh, is also sort of the uniting uh, factor within the, the tech sector. Um, you know, uh, New York City uh, in particular, I think, is doing uh, a great job here uh, where you have, um, you know, computer science for all and uh, through CSNYC where uh, we're going to be teaching and have already started to teach uh, computer science to every student uh, in the New York City um, uh, school system, uh, which is awesome. Uh, and I think at the end of the day, um, you know, entrepreneurs uh, see challenges and, and they take action. Um, and we're not going to wait for the federal government, we may not wait for the state or city government uh, to create the change that we want to see. 
Um, Donald Trump will be meeting with tech executives tomorrow. Um, it's kind of like he's finally gotten around to the tech sector after meeting with uh, a lot of people in banking and finance. Um, what would you want to hear? <laughs> well, I mean, he did take aim at the tech industry throughout the campaign. What would you like to hear him say that would um, make the industry feel better about its prospects under a Trump administration? I'd love to um, you know, talk about those issues that matter most to us, which are generally uh, immigration and, and education, um, and making sure that um, we are uh, continuing to um, push a STEM uh, a, agenda and um, one that is backed with uh, scientific fact and, and evidence. Um, and uh, th those are some of the, the, the big things. Um, the tech community is also, um, at least the tech companies that we engage most with are uh, those that believe in diversity and, and inclusion. Um, and uh, if, uh, if we could hear more uh, from the president-elect on, on that front, um, I, I would feel a lot more comfortable. All right, let's get to our lightning round, which is basically another way of saying I have a bunch of random questions that don't really um, have any connective tissue between them, and I wanted to get your thoughts on them. So um, GQ christened your company at the very beginning, the Netflix of eyewear. That's kind of what you guys became known as. After your success, everyone wanted to be the Warby Parker of something. So what's the best answer you've heard to, I want to be the Warby Parker of blank? Um, we saw Warby Parker of underwear, um, and we just hope they don't have a home try-on program. <laughs> In someone's apartment. Yeah, right, exactly. Don't go, if someone's offering you underwear, don't go to their apartment to try it on. Yeah, um, maybe they'd have better luck with the subscription model, right? <laughs> um, your prominent investors include Tiger Global, Jimmy Buffett, Ari Emanuel, Ashton Kutcher. Have any of them ever come up to you and been like, I have a really great idea. You should totally do this. <laughs> um, none of those individuals, but we once had an idea, we were pitching an idea on, oh, why don't we just create really cool jewelry and necklaces that you could hang your glasses on. Um, needless to say, that's still being workshopped. <laughs> okay. You had mentioned vulnerability, and I know that a big part of your corporate culture is to show vulnerability. Um, as an individual entrepreneur, where do you think you are most vulnerable? Um, Probably me would be my uh, experience, right? I, uh, You're vulnerable in your experience. Um, I, I think it's a vulnerability uh, of mine, um, and you know, I perhaps represent that in different ways. Uh, hopefully, I ask lots of questions and try and learn from people that are far smarter and more experienced. Wait, you went than I. to you graduated from undergrad and you went to business school. You have more experience than most people in Silicon Valley. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, but I, actually one of the big differences I, I think between the Valley and the city is um, because you have um, a lot of uh, companies that have scaled uh, very quickly over the last 10 years, um, you do have uh, an executive uh, class in, uh -huh. in the Valley that has been there, done that before uh, many times and whether they had their experience at Oracle or Yahoo and are now uh, at Uber uh, or Facebook. Um, there is that experience. Uh, Reed Hoffman calls it blitz scaling. Um, and and um, you generally don't have as much of that talent here in, in New York. So your vulnerability is you haven't failed enough. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> you haven't started up a business and seen it fail completely yeah. and then go and start, off, start another business. Um, you've been quoted as saying strategy is something that you don't do. 
right? So what's the most recent idea that you shot down that you didn't do? Um, well, I stole that from Patty McCord at, uh, at Netflix. Full disclosure. Um, <laughs> um, I think, um, you know, one of the things that we did, uh, for example, is that we uh, forwent uh, selling progressive lenses for the first four years of the business. So progressive lenses help you see in the distance and up close. It's half of the total eyewear market. So we were saying no to the entire, to half of the, the market until we had a strong foundation uh, from which we could really serve those customers because it's a more complicated product to provide. Is there an idea that you shot down that you later regretted and someone else picked up the ball and ran with it? Um, you know, I, I think that we've always thought about adjacencies, uh, whether that's other apparel and accessories, um, other parts of uh, the optical industry. Uh, there's a lot of uh, contact uh, startups going now, and of course we've thought about that and, and explored it. Uh, Maybe something that we will do eventually. Um, uh, but uh, I'm, I'm glad uh, that we're not pursuing uh, those. Is LASIK eye surgery good or bad for your business? I got LASIK, so I haven't worn glasses <laughs> in years. Um, it's surprisingly irrelevant. Um, the LASIK as a, um, as a percent of the total market uh, actually hasn't moved in uh, about 20 years, basically since, uh, since it started. It scaled up a little bit, um, and uh, it actually uh, tends to get hit based on the business cycle. So um, if there's a recession, um, right before that recession, you may want to sell your LASIK stock. Because um, uh. it's, a, it, it, it's um, right, a, a discretionary purchase um, that people tend to scale back. So it's an economic indicator as well. How many pairs of glasses do you own? <laughs> um, uh, way more than, than my wife would like. Um, uh, actually, I, in my closet, I have a special glasses drawer. Um, uh, but I actually don't have as many different pairs as you think. So this particular pair, the Clark, um, I have about 12 pairs at home. 12 pairs? Oh, yeah. Different colors or different uh, sizes? Same one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> How many sunglasses do you have? Um, I also have about 12 pairs of sunglasses. That I switch up a little bit more. <laughs> okay. Um, what's the worst pitch that you ever made? You might not have a lot of failures under your belt, but I'm sure you've made a, a bad pitch somewhere. Um, you know, one of the things that we tried to do uh, was uh, have home field advantage uh, with a lot of folks. We definitely got told no. Um, you know, I think. Uh, people thought, oh, um, no one's going to buy glasses online, um, or you can only scale it uh, sort of this much. Or more recently, a lot of people are saying, I'm not investing in e-commerce anymore. Um, of course, that was right before uh, uh, Jet was acquired and Dollar Shave Club was acquired. Uh, so hopefully that mentality uh, has now shifted back to, to where it was before. Um, but uh, we've, we found that, yes, sometimes there are these sort of sacred cows that certain investors come to the table that we weren't uh, anticipating uh, until after we gave our pitch. It's like, wish we knew that ahead of time. What kind of sacred cows? Oh, just like, hey, I'm not investing in e-commerce anymore. Uh, or um, Like hard know. and fast rules. Right, exactly. Got it. All right. We want to thank Neil Blumenthal, Warby Parker, for his time, for thank being you. so game to answer all our questions. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow Tech at Bloomberg on Twitter, like Cornell Tech at Bloomberg on Facebook, or email techevents at Bloomberg.net to get invited to future events in this series. 
You can also watch any of the interviews from this series on Inside Bloomberg on YouTube.